Well, good morning. Really glad we could be together. So good to see all of you here. Those of you joining us online, we're glad that you're with us as well. I'm seeing some of you that I haven't seen in like a year and a half. That feels really good. How does it feel for you? All right, good. We're, we're glad to be back together. So uh, super glad that we can have this time together. I love week after week after week. We get to be together, worship God as our band leads us, and then open God's Word. It's just uh, pretty special. And so I look forward to talking to you today in a brand new series. So uh, I grew up in the church. The church was part of my life from my earliest childhood. You know, our family would go into the church and we had our reserved pew. Don't sit in our pew. You laugh. Some of you, you're in the habit right now. I see you. In fact, it throws me off when some of you guys, I recognize where you sit and you're not there. And then I look over here. It's like, okay, I get it. We're a little territorial like that. Uh, And a few rows ahead of us in our church on a pew, you could find Miss Tilly. Miss Tilly would often be wearing an enormous hat. And so whenever she sat in front of us, I couldn't see anything that was going on. But that was what was happening. The service was familiar and routine. The song, How Great Thou Art, was always on page 17 of the hymnal. Uh, and uh, the doxology was played, and we would exit with that, and it was an awesome kind of thing. I remember preparing for a youth event one time in our church, and there was a piano that was on the floor that we needed to move so that we could do our youth program. And, and so there was a woman who had given that piano, donated that piano to the church, and she said, you'll move that piano over my dead body. And I didn't say it, but I thought, that's not a bad idea. I mean, <laughs> that would have been terrible. Indeed, as a kid, I was fascinated by the communion wafers that we had. There was just something about eating styrofoam. It was awesome. I mean, this little thing you put in your mouth and it, and it would melt. And so imagine my surprise when, as a kid, I found the storage cabinet for the communion wafers in our church. I was popping those babies like popcorn. It was awesome. And some of you, depending on your church background, you're thinking, Joe, you're going to hell. I just know it. I just know it. It was exciting, but nothing could compare to what happened in the tiny little chapel out on the side of that sanctuary. It was there for the very first time as a young teenager that I heard the gospel, that Jesus Christ had taken my sin on himself. He had died in my place and now offered me a free gift. And so in that little room, along with some other teenagers, I placed my faith in Christ. I believed in him. My life has never been the same. So grateful to God for what happened in that little room that day. So ask most people, what is the church? And they're likely to point to a church building or describe a church service. We're just kind of wired to think like that, aren't we? But in the Bible, God describes the church as a body. It's like a single body with lots of different parts, and we all make up the parts of that body. In the Bible, we hear the church described as a family. Now, depending on what kind of family of origin you came from, it may be a wonderful description or you know, it may cause you to kind of withhold a little bit. But that, nonetheless, we're, we're a family. Open the Bible, and when you hear about the church, and you'll also hear the word army. We're like an army with, with a mission. I like to describe it, we're, we're an army Uh, on the move, but we also have a hospital wing, okay? So we're there to help people get patched up because the battle is real. And the church is also pictured as an unstoppable movement. You can't stop it if you wanted to. It is an unstoppable movement of God. 
In fact, uh, Jesus said it this way, in your going or as you go or as you're moving, make disciples. And so there's this constant sense of movement and activity. But more specifically, what is the church? We could probably take a stab at different definitions other than those metaphors that I've mentioned. Well, there's the big C church, I like to describe it, capital C church, right? It's made up of every person who has believed in Jesus for their salvation. That's, that's big C church. And it stretches all over the world today. Isn't that wonderful? That's the body of Christ. That's the big C church, those who have believed in Jesus. But the big C church is organized in little C churches. And this is a little C church right here. Local assemblies where believers meet together and, and we worship and we're exposed to God's word and we encourage each other and we do those things that you do as the body of Christ uh, together. And some of you sitting here in Little C Church today or joining us online for this Little C Church service, you're not yet part of Big C Church. You haven't come to the place where you have believed in Jesus like that still may be a little confusing for some of you. You know, you're trying your best. Like I'm in church, Joe, cut me some slack, right? But you haven't understood that Jesus has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. Jesus has died in your place. Jesus has taken your sin on himself. And now he offers you life that is free of charge. And so you can be congregated in a little C church and not be part of the big C church. Here's another way to think about it. You can be part of the big C church, you can be a believer in Jesus, and not be engaged in little C church. And we're seeing that more and more in our day. Today we're beginning a brand new series called Rechurch. There, there it is, you see the word. And look it up in the dictionary, and you're not going to find anything. You know why? It's a made up word. Welcome to preaching. This is what we do. We, we make up words, and we make up definitions of words. And so... This makes a lot of sense and will as we continue to unfold this series. Let me define it for you. I'm going to call it a verb. You know why? Because I can. All right? Rechurch is a verb. It means to engage in a fresh way with the miracle movement called the church. Would you read that aloud with me? Here we go. To engage in a fresh way with the miracle movement called the church. That is to rechurch. That's what we mean in this series, and I'm super excited to travel these weeks with you as we explore this more and more. The church is a miracle movement of God. You'll be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. It just is. To re-church means to engage with that movement in a fresh way. Why do we say a fresh way? Well, there's several reasons, but not the least of which is because for the last year and a half, COVID and other challenges have changed our world. They have. It's tampered with our priorities. It's created new habits. For some, it's, it's distracted us from the miracle movement of God called the church. It's easier than ever before to disengage with church and maybe even from God. I like the way the the writer to the Hebrews says it with a kind of urgency in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And notice he goes on to say verse 24. You can follow along there in Hebrews 10. He says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, he says. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do 
but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You hear the urgency behind the words of the writer to the Hebrews. Guys, we don't have to abandon our hope. I don't care what happens in the world. We don't have to abandon our hope. Let us think of ways, therefore, to motivate each other. Do you need motivating? Yeah, I do too. Toward acts of love and good works. Don't neglect our meeting together. You're here. We're grateful for that. You're joining us online. We're grateful for that. But don't neglect it. You know why? Why would he say that? Because we can. We can neglect it. As some people are doing. Some of your translations have. As some are in the habit of doing. It doesn't take long to break a habit. Many of us were in the habit of coming together as a church. And that habit got all busted up and fractured because of this crazy time that we're living in. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So the church is about motivating each other. It's about gathering together. It's about encouraging each other. All with the expectation of Christ's return. That's to be motivating for us. Christ is coming back. And throughout the Bible, we see a constant reminder. I'm going to make a couple of observations here today. And the point goes like this. God's work in and through his church continues regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances. Do you realize that God never breaks into a cold sweat wondering how he'll get out of a problem? God never goes, oh, gosh. Pandemic, pandemic. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) And in fact, the movement of God called the church is powerfully at work no matter the circumstances. See, we we sometimes have this idea that, oh gosh, this is so tragic. This is a terrible thing. Didn't see this coming. We're in a challenging time. Unprecedented, we say. (laughs) As though God, are you aware? Of course God's aware. We just have to cling to him more than ever and hear from him. In fact, take the lid off of oppressive countries and you'll often find a thriving underground church. This was true in China. It was true in the former Soviet Union, even true in Afghanistan. All around the world, it's not as though God says, you know, oh my goodness, when oppressive regimes show up, my church just, ha- they have to go somewhere else. They have to do something else. No, in a weird kind of way, the church thrives even though it's underground. That's powerful. God's movement is unstoppable. This is why Jesus said it plainly. I will build my church and even death can't stop it. I will build my church. You know, it it was a couple of years into this church plant for me before I realized that it's not my job to build this church. And let me just tell you, trying to humanly build a church is exhausting. I mean, look at me. Don't I look worn out? Okay. (laughs) That's way too much laughter. Okay. Jesus says, I'll build my church. I'll build my church. And we can count on him to do that. And and even death can't stop it. Can I just add, that implies some will die. He doesn't say, and nobody will die. He says he'll build his church, okay? So God invites you and me into this movement. And the, the movement of God, called the church, will continue with or without you or me. Just think about that for a minute, okay? So it's just moving on. God's just moving on. He's working in the world. And it's though God's saying, hey, come on and join me. You you can come and join me. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to get this thing accomplished. You can sit right where you are or you can come and join me. 
This is going to happen. And I don't know about you, but I suspect if you're like me, you want to be part of that. You want to be part of what God is doing in the world. So just like every kind of movement, provisions are required, right, to advance the effort. We have the provision of God's word. He has spoken to us in his word. Oh, how rich is the word of God. And he has resourced us with the indwelling Holy Spirit the moment you and I believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to look to live inside of us. He is our guide. He is our comforter. He is that resource, that connection. He is that thing that Jesus said to the disciples, hey guys, it's better that I go away. It's better than I am not even here with you anymore. Better, why? Because the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is better than hanging out with Jesus when he walked the earth. That's a little crazy, but that's what Jesus said. Okay. So did you catch the sermon title today? The meal of the movement. The meal of the movement. So Napoleon once said it this way. An army marches on its stomach. Have you heard that? And what he meant by that was in order to be effective, an army, any army relies on food and provisions. If they are to be successful, if they are to win in battle, they have to have them. So what is the food or the meal most identified with the church? It's communion or the Lord's Supper. Some people refer to it as the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word, which means thanksgiving. And there's a lot of thanksgiving around what we celebrate. It was initiated by Jesus that very night that he was betrayed and arrested. He was with his disciples in an upper room. They were celebrating the Passover meal. And we find in Luke chapter 22... Then in in that uh, room and on that occasion, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What a moment that must have been. And we can imagine the disciples must have been at least a little confused, right? What do you mean, Jesus, this Passover meal, you're saying this bread is your body, this cup, what what, what are we talking about here? This act of remembering Christ's death was passed along through the early church to this day. But in writing to the Christians at Corinth, Paul said, I can't praise you. I'm withholding my praise of you, he says to these Corinthian believers Because of what was happening when they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. I can't praise you, he's saying. So it's interesting. I hear people sometimes say, I just want to be part of a New Testament church. Really? As if somehow we have this idea that, oh, in the New Testament times, people were just so holy. (laughs) And they were so kind to each other. And they just floated about three feet off the ground. How you doing, Tim? Pretty good. How you doing? <laughs> Can I just say when we say you want to be part of a New Testament church, you got to at least answer which one? They're pretty much all messed up. So take your choice. Okay. So Paul writes to this church at Corinth and he's saying to these folks, listen, something terrible has happened. In, instead, the Corinthians, the Corinthian believers were mired in division. The Greek word there is schismata. Sound familiar? Schism. It's the word from which we get our word schism. Around the celebration of the agape meal, that's what they called it, the, the love meal. 
Okay, I always thought this is weird sounding, the love fest, the love feast, the love whatever. You get the idea. It was a meal where the whole church in Corinth came together and celebrated the Lord's Supper. That's how it was way back then. And so Paul is writing and saying, listen, there are divisions around this celebration. What was happening? Well, many were eating ahead of others. They would come together. So imagine this giant church potluck. Okay, and there were divisions in that meal. People would come together and they, before any, any, everybody had gotten together, they were already eating and already, you know, sort of doing their own little thing. There were poor people who were part of that church who were being ignored and neglected. They didn't have enough food to come and imagine the embarrassment of that. Paul would go on to say, listen, and there were people getting drunk. So he said, look, do your eating and drinking in your own house. Okay. When we come together here, there's something very important that is taking place. And he recognizes that within that church, there are divisions. So Paul himself goes back to the beginning. What beginning? The beginning where Jesus initiated this supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. A couple of weeks ago I was up here telling you about, you know where Paul got his revelation from. He got directly from Jesus. So Paul is saying, I received this from Jesus. And it's remarkably similar to what happened that very night. He says, okay, the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is what Jesus said. Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, verse 25, and in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is what Jesus said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, this is Paul talking now, and drink and bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. There's a similar theme that we saw in the Hebrews verse, okay? So we're celebrating this remembrance or this memory device to remind each other what Jesus did and to say, oh, by the way, he's coming again. It's to serve as a reminder that we're not done. We're not just remembering somebody who's dead. Jesus, in fact, is alive and he's coming back. I often find it so fascinating that God, when initiating this whole idea of communion of the Lord's Supper, would choose food. Like he would choose a symbol that's so essential to our physical sustenance and survival. You got to eat. And so what does he do? He reaches for this object lesson, this reminder that involves something so daily, so ordinary, so much a part of our lives, so that we will realize this is to be part of our lives, just as food is to be part of our lives. So celebrating the Lord's Supper is meant to help us remember. So flip through the pages of the Bible, and you'll discover that, that the people of God are prone to a repeatable sin. God's people experienced his presence. They saw him do miracles. They enjoyed his provision. And after all these encounters, God's people gravitated toward one repeatable sin. You know what it was? Forgetfulness. They just forgot. Over and over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, you find the people of God going, I didn't remember. <laughs> I don't know. After God had showed up, they just forgot. They failed to remember God's presence and provision. They stopped telling the stories. The past became irrelevant. They failed to remember the plans and purposes of their great God. And one of those plans and purposes of God is that he has made believers in Jesus to be one. 
Now think about that for a minute. Those of you in this room today, those of you joining us online, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are inseparably connected to every other believer who's part of Big C Church. Inseparably connected. God did that. That's what God planned. That's what God wanted. God wanted us to be uh, connected like that. So no wonder Paul is grieved about the division around the Lord's Supper within the Corinthian church. Let me throw out another reminder. I'm going to suggest it's vital that you and I work toward unity at all costs or it will cost us all. Everybody will pay. So unity is costly, isn't it? Unity doesn't just happen. We don't just wake up one day. Hey, everyone, let's just get along. It costs. It costs us something. But division is costlier. That costs us something too. And Paul knew that. So this is true in our marriages and our families and our relationships at work and the, fr- the friend relationships that we have. And unity and division are costly in the church as well. Say, you know, the last year and a half or so, I've noticed a culture shift, and you have too, and there are a lot of prognosticators out there a lot smarter than I am, so this is anecdotal. You just take it for what it's worth. Have you noticed, like I have, the last year and a half, people seem more exhausted? They just seem more easily annoyed? Anger just seems to be just below, just skin deep, just below the surface? People seem more impatient, more irritable? We're stubbornly independent now. And we're self-protective. That seems like a lot of our new reality. But it doesn't stop there. Many others, with God's help, are faithfully navigating life's intensity. They are lights. They are voices of truth in uncertain times. They're they're joy to be around. You You know these people? They restore our hope in God's movement called the church. They're out there. Some of you are those people. So we talk about unity a lot at LifePoint. Because God talks a lot about unity. Unity is possible. It is, with God's help. But it can be very fragile. And divisiveness is easy and destructive. It doesn't take any effort to be divisive. All you got to do is just drop a little bomb of a statement over here. Or be... Let friction get going right here. Doesn't take any effort. It just happens. Division sometimes begins with jealousy or envy or gossiping. Or it begins when sides are taken or or when others are treated in an unloving way. No wonder Paul spoke so strongly against divisiveness of the Corinthian believers as it relates to the Lord's Supper. That's the context. Their divisiveness meant that they participated in communion in an unworthy manner. For those of you that have church background, especially like big denominational kind of church, you grew up hearing that phrase, unworthy manner, unworthy. We're coming to communion, coming to the table. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. Well, well we know that in the immediate context, Paul is describing division. That is the unworthy manner. That's what's being talked about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So notice Paul's warning as he continues to write to these believers. Verse 28, 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, there it is again, it gets repeated a lot in this chapter, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or distinguishing uh, the Lord's body. In other words, we come to this meal in this case, or to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever you want to call it. And, and we're not carefully looking at ourselves and we're sort of drinking judgment to ourselves. We're not distinguishing the Lord's body. We're not we're just saying, hey, this is just another meal. <clears throat> this is just another chance to be together. And we're not thinking about it deeply. And notice the consequences. Uh, look at verse 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's, let's pull that slide up and let's see it. For, he says, for this reason, many are weak, Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many are dead, he says. Like that, that's a profound idea. So what Paul's saying is, I'm writing to you guys because you're in disunity. Here's what verse 28 says. Let a man examine himself, and so, so he, eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or distinguishing the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died. Like, that's serious business, isn't it? It really is. So communion is more than a ritual. It's remembering the single most important Contribution to the world, the gift of Jesus Christ on behalf of our sins. So Paul gives a simple solution for avoiding the same fate of believers today. Believers who promote division. There it is, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What in the world is he talking about? For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So our culture has such paranoia around judgment, don't we? Like, just mention it. People freak out. Don't be judging me. Oh, you're so judgmental. But do you know we're commanded to judge? We're actually commanded to judge ourselves. That's what this says. For if we would judge ourselves a good thing, we would not be judged by God. How how were the Corinthians judged by God? Well, when they were divisive, especially around the celebration of the Lord's Supper, what happened? Well, they became weak and they became sick. And many of them died. That's what he's saying. Hey, guys, if you don't want to go down that path, if you don't want to be judged by God, it could be like that or it could be in any way. I don't want to be judged by God no matter what it looks like. Okay, so he's saying make sure you judge yourselves first. So search yourself for any hint of of a divisive spirit and deal with it before God has to. That's essentially what Paul's saying. Beat God to the punch. Search yourself so that God doesn't have to deal with it. Examine your attitudes that dishonor God and uh, fracture the unity in Christ's body. So some soul-searching questions are in order, okay? Are you ready? You just chew on them and do with them however God leads you. Here's the first one. Who in our church annoys you and why? By the way, this is not meant to be answered out loud, so, and no pointing, okay? Now, these are the kind of questions I'm going to give you here that set us up to evaluate very seriously our potential for being a divisive person, okay? So who in our church annoys you? How come? What is it about them that annoys you? Next. 
Are any of your words or actions divisive? Are you likely to be envious, jealous, or a gossip? And if so, do you excuse your poor behavior? See, Christians don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. <laughs> uh. Here's another one. Are you willing to put aside personal preferences to show love to others? That, that's exactly what Paul was saying here, guys. Eat at home. Or are you willing to do things that are inconvenient for you in order to show personal preference or love to others? Here's another one. Do you ignore personal conflict hoping that the tension will just go away? Are you determined to speak well of others even when they are not around you? I've often said sometimes the best compliment is a second-hand compliment. I mean, we're so used to going, hey, you know what he said about you, anticipating something negative? Imagine if we came to each other and said, do you know what she said about you? She thinks you're awesome. I mean, imagine if that gets caught among a church family, what could happen? Or, how about this one? Do people view you as a unifying presence? And then finally, are you committed to being a Christ-like influencer? Again, nothing new. We talk about it all the time. How do you know if you're a Christ-like influencer? We've identified five characteristics. A Christ-like influencer surrenders continually, loves extravagantly, invests relationally, gives generously, and engages with God daily. Friends, if we're looking like that, if we're heading in that direction... Unity will be a natural overflow of our personal Christ-likeness. It can really happen. I like the way Paul said in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. So maybe you've guessed it already. Today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating communion together, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving celebration. So for those of you that are at home, I would release you to go into your kitchen or wherever you need to uh, get some juice or something to drink and get some bread or crackers or something like that. And you'll join us back here when you come back for that. And if you're live in the room with us um, all around the edge of the platform here are small communion servings. On one side there's bread and on the other side there's a cup. They're just all together right there. And we even have gluten free because the disciples did I guess. I don't know. So you'll find those. They're marked on top. But Here's, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. Um, I'd like to invite us all to with a, with a focus and a dependence on God on unity among us. To celebrate this today as an act of faithfulness toward God and saying, God, you you have done what for me? You you have you sent your son to take my sin. You you died in my place. And so as as you come, uh, as the band plays this song, take one of these, go back to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together, okay? And so in a spirit of worship, in a spirit of gratitude, in a spirit of saying, what a great God you are. And in a spirit of unity, let's move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'd like to pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus.
Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf, even though we were not deserving. That's what your grace is all about. You met us in our point of need. And God, thank you for the miracle called the church, a miracle movement birthed in your heart. We pray that as little C life point here, we would be a light in our region and beyond to other parts of the world. And that we would be a place where unity is palpable. And we know that because division is so easy, that unity is a challenge, but it's not too big for you. So now in an act of worship, we prepare ourselves to remember the body broken and bloodshed. In Jesus' name, amen.